0: All right, turn in your copy of Scripture to Micah chapter 6. We're looking at what God wants. We've uh, walked through this passage, or this, this uh, book together, beginning in chapter 1. And we learned first that God wants us to trust Him. Uh, then in, in uh, Micah chapter 2 and 3, we saw that God wants us to represent Him well uh, each day. Uh, then, uh, uh, last week, we looked at uh, Micah chapter Five, and we saw that God wants us uh, to, uh, uh, to taste the peace that he provides, to, to live in that peace, <coughs> to be saturated by the fullness and the wholeness of life as he has designed it through the person of Jesus Christ. And then today, uh, we're going to see that God wants us to love him supremely. That's the big picture. Uh, Micah chapter 6, we're going to look at verses 1 through the end of Micah 6 and chapter 7 verses 1 through 7. We won't spend a lot of time on all of that. Uh, This is the key passage, I believe, in the whole book. Micah 6 verse 8, what does God require of you, O man, Uh, but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God now i i 've quoted that verse several times over the course of these last few weeks because that does ask and answer the key question: what does God want? What does God require of you but to do justly to love mercy and to walk humbly with your god we 'll get to that in a second, but before we dig down deep into uh, uh, to what Micah chapter six verse eight tells us let let 's pick up where Micah And the children of Israel are. Micah and the children of Israel are behind the walls of Jerusalem. And there is an enemy, a superpower that has laid siege around Jerusalem. The people inside the walls are going through all the, the carnage and the distress and the despair that people would experience being under siege. We don't understand that. I think maybe the closest we've come in my lifetime is when uh, we had uh, difficulties in the Middle East and we had to ration our automobile gas. And this back in the uh, late 70s. Y'all remember that? And you had these long lines of, uh, and we felt like we were so put upon because we couldn't get gas when we wanted it, right? Well, imagine that except replace automobile fuel with food. Or water, and make that a daily thing. It wasn't a, it wasn't a, 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 a luxury item that they were looking for. It, it's not that they weren't able to eat their dark chocolate in the evening times. They didn't have food, and in the midst of this despair, not only the, the, the deprivation that they were experiencing behind the walls, but also the inevitable this foreign power is going to overwhelm us, and we're going to be slaves to this group of people. So that that sense of hopelessness and despair uh, has permeated the people of God. So much so that probably you would see them there around the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem, and they're crying out, Oh God, why me? Why has this happened to me? Why why has this happened to us? Oh, God, we don't understand. God, we thought that you were going to be faithful to us. God, we thought that you were going to take care of us. God, how could you let this happen? And I think that's familiar words or at least familiar thoughts to most of us in the room. God, I I, I can't put my mind around why you're letting all this bad stuff happen to me. In some ways the the complaints that the children of Israel were making against God, they were trying to put God on trial for not being faithful to them. But in Micah chapter six, beginning verse one, God turns the table. Now, actually what he does is he, he dismisses the fantasy of the people of God and their complaints against him as being unfaithful. He dismisses their fantasy and he begins to give them a huge dose of reality. And boy, we need a huge dose of reality. So, uh, God turns it around in Micah chapter 6 verse 1, uh, through, the, through prophet, uh, the prophet Micah, God speaks. And he says, arise, arise. And plead your case. See God. God is. Now. Making it an official court case. Where God is the judge. Micah is the messenger. The people of God. They're the ones on trial. And then the mountains and the hills. They're the witnesses. It's in this. This court case, which is very familiar, especially in the prophetic books of the Old Testament. This court case where God explicitly declares to his people how they have blown it. And and how they've blown it is they've taken the faithfulness that God has shown from the very beginning of their history. And their heart has grown cold toward him. They've, they've taken all that God has done and they've kind of forgotten it. They certainly don't feel the same way that they used to feel when they would think about it. And their love has grown cold. They've, they've distanced themselves to the covenant that they had with God. Now, covenant is a, is a big term. It, it's, it's, it's a term that that we understand every time we uh, sign an official document that, uh, that, that dedicates ourselves or our resources to something, that's a covenant that we're making. Um, it's in the picture of this covenant that between God and His people that the court case really takes off and takes wings. It's, it's where God reminds his people that he made a promise to them. That he would care for them. That he would provide for them. That he would protect them. That he would be their God. And he would be faithful in demonstrating his love toward them. But it's also a reminder that the people of God made a promise to him. That they would be faithful to him that they would obey him, ultimately that they would love him supremely. It's a court case not merely for the children of Israel back in their day, it's a court case for us today. As followers of Jesus Christ, the question is, has our heart turned cold toward God? Look Look in verse 3 of Micah chapter 6. In verse 3, uh, God says, Oh, my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Testify against me. And God says, Why did you become weary with me? Have you ever asked yourself that question? I mean, just take a moment. Why in the world do I get tired of God? How is it that I, who have received so much from Him, push Him to the margin of my life? Act like what He wants is irrelevant. Don't really take into consideration... His character and His faithfulness and His love for me? What has God done to us that we would become so cold toward Him? How does our love for Him grow cold? If you just look at all that God has done, then, then you would say, well, I have no excuse. And that's what God reminds the children of Israel. He says, okay, I brought you up out of the land of Egypt. I rescued you from the house of bondage. I gave you leaders like Moses and Aaron and Miriam. I provided for you and protected you in the situation with Balak and Balaam. I took you from the Acacia Grove all the way to Gilgal. God was saying, everything I promised... I did. Everything that God has promised, he will be faithful to fulfill. The mountains, all the heavens declare, yes, God has been faithful in his love for his people. Today, if we take a hard look at our lives and our own journey And if the mountains could talk and the rocks could speak, they would say, yes, God has been faithful to us. He has loved us. He's loved you and is loving you today. How can our hearts grow so cold? that we would forget God. Well, as Micah continues, he's, he's presenting the court case, and, and God says, now, you, you want to testify against me? Testify against me. And, and, uh, and he rehearses again what he had done, what he has done in, in his rescuing love for his people. And then we hear Israel speak. And their response hints at sarcasm, but also misses the point completely. I, I want you to look at verse 7 and 8. They said, or verse 6 and 7, what, what, With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the high God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old, Will he be pleased with thousands of rams, ten thousand rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? You know, what they do is probably what we have done at different times. They, they turn to their religious exercises to show God their love for him. Oh God, don't you see how, how how much we've given you? We've taken, uh, we've taken from our herd and we've sacrificed it at the altar. We've taken from our grain and brought it as an offering to you, God. We've done all these things, but but God, obviously that's not good enough for you. So let's up the ante a little bit. What do you really want? You want not just one from my herd. You want my whole herd. You don't want just a little bit of my grain. You want vats, ten thousand vats of oil. You 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 don't want just part of what i have god you want my firstborn son you 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 are you god you're you're unfair and unjust see what the people of god at that time were doing is they were using their religious acts their religious exercises as kind of an insurance policy against judgment Somewhere in their fanciful imagination, they had created this scenario that if they went to church every week, they would be okay with God. And God would be okay with them. Somewhere in their fanciful imagination, they began to believe that uh, their religious exercises was all that God really wanted. That's, That's it. And the more extravagant that I that I become in my religious exercise, the more love I'm showing God. So so it's not just showing up on a Sunday morning here at church, but it's also feeding people at a soup kitchen on Sunday afternoon. But the problem is the children of Israel were missing the point. God wasn't looking for their religious exercises. He was looking for their heart. And today, all across this room, God is not looking for our religious effort. He's looking for our heart. What does God require of you, O man? But to do justly. To love mercy. To walk humbly. With your God. What does God require? What does God want? Well, Micah 6 8 is a rehearsal again of the terms of the covenant that God had made with his people, the terms of the covenant that he makes with us. The terms of the covenant hear the the commands of God and obey them, fear the Lord and be diligent to obey his commands. The terms of the covenant summarized. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, therefore you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength. Jesus picked up that great command, the terms of the covenant, in uh, Mark chapter 12, verse 29 through 31, and he says, Here it is. Here's what God wants. Here's what God requires. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. These are the terms of the covenant. How can we love God when our hearts have grown cold toward him? And how can we escape what happens if we remain cold toward God? See, see verses 9 through 16 of Micah chapter 6, they tell the story of what happens if our hearts as followers of Jesus, if our hearts continue to remain cold toward God, here's what happens. The Lord's voice cries to the city, wisdom shall see your name. Hear the rod who has appointed it. Are there yet treasures of wickedness in the house of the wicked in short measure that, it, that is an abomination? Shall I count pure those uh, with wicked scales with the bag of deceitful weights for her rich man are full of violence? Her inhabitants have spoken lies and their tongue is deceitful in their mouth. Therefore, I will also make you sick by striking you, by making you desolate because of your sins. You shall eat, but not be satisfied. Hunger shall be in your midst. You may carry some away, but you're not going to save them, the food. And what you do rescue, I will give over to the sword." You will sow, but you will not reap. You will tread the olives, but not anoint yourselves with oil. You will make sweet wine, but you'll not drink the wine. For the statutes of Omri are kept. All the works of Ahab's house are are done, and you walk in their counsels. That's not good counsel, by the way. You walk in their counsels so that I may make you a desolation, your inhabitants a hissing. Therefore, you shall bear the reproach of my people. You know what he's saying? He's saying, you continue this course. If your heart remains cold toward me, even as followers of Christ, there will be great judgment. Desolation. Devastation. I'm not talking about some corporate entity. I'm not talking about some government body. I'm talking about you and me as the people of God. It's what kills churches, by the way. Hearts turned cold toward God. It's what kills us today. Hearts turned cold toward God. And there isn't enough religious exercise that we can perform that will help us when our heart is cold toward God. That's why God says, here's what I want. I want you to love me with your whole heart. I want you to love me with all your heart. And and how can we move toward uh, that loving God supremely and away from a heart that's cold toward Him? Well, the first step is to remember all the acts of rescue and love that He has done for us. Remember. In uh, verse 3, no, verse 5, Micah says, chapter 6, verse 5, Micah says, God God is speaking through Micah, and God says, remember now. That Hebrew term for remember is a term that means to take some past memory but bring it into the present tense so that all the feelings and the thoughts and the emotions of that past event become a present tense reality in your life. God rehearses. He says, don't you remember... Do you remember how I brought you up out of the land of Egypt? Do you remember how I redeemed you, how I rescued you from the house of bondage? Do you remember how I gave you leaders who would lead you in a way that is uh, faithful to the covenant? Do you remember how I provided for you even in the situations that were difficult and how I took you all the way from the Acacia Grove to Gilgal? I fulfilled my promise to you. Don't you remember how I provided for you, how I took care of you? how I helped you, how I have loved you. Don't you remember? And today, I think for all of us, we have this tendency as followers of Christ to allow the past event of our rescue, the past event of God's great love lavished on us and making us His own children through Jesus Christ. We have a tendency to take that past event and leave it in the past. And we fail to bring the memory of that past event into our present. So that it comes alive again. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed, lavished on us. That we should be called the children of God. God sent Jesus To demonstrate his love toward us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. It is through Jesus, his death in my place for my sin upon a cross. It is through Jesus that I am brought into the family of God. Not my religious exercise. But it's through Jesus that God has rescued me. He's paid the price of my rescue with the death of his own son. And I must remember. See, I think that we need to be diligent every day to awaken in our hearts again the feelings and the emotion, the joy that God's rescue has brought to us. Guys, I, I think the more we remember how lost we were before we met Jesus and how hopeless we were, before we met Jesus, how, how desperate we were before we met Jesus, how, how diseased and crooked we were before we met Jesus. I think if we remember the pain of being without God and without hope in this world, and then we reflect on, oh, but God in his great love sent Jesus to die for my sin. And, and, and we remember the love that God displayed toward me, a sinner, to rescue me, to bring me up, out of bondage and and deliver me from the house of bondage of my sin, when we remember how that our guilt was wiped away in a moment through faith in Jesus Christ, when we remember and allow that past memory to be awakened in our hearts today, how can that but help us be more passionate in our heart for God who has done this very thing? God did not owe you or me salvation. He owed you and me punishment. But in love, he gave us a chance to be rescued. And now I'm set free. And I live a brand new life through faith in Jesus Christ. Do you remember? When we remember what God has done, it changes how we live each day, the more we rehearse and remember that that past event becomes a present reality of my rescue, living in the joy of my salvation here and now, all because of God and what He's done for me. When I remember that it leads me to pursue God's heart first. Awakened Again. To His great love for me, my heart begins to beat for His heart. To pursue God's heart first, to do justly. You might say, well, what's the, what's the balance? What's the, what's, the, uh, what's the connection between to do justly and pursue God's heart first? Well, justly, that's the Hebrew term mishpat, and it, it is a summary word for all of God's will. Contained in the law and the prophets. His his commands, His judgments. It's a code word pointing us back to the heart of God. His will for us, for us, for us. To do justly means that we pursue what God wants first of all above our own desires, above our own inclinations, above our own politics. By the way, if I might be political for a moment, to do justly means that we care for the poor and the oppressed in our society, that we do. It's on us. On us. And until we take ownership, of that responsibility we're we're some, somehow disconnected from the heart of the Father. The heart of the Father is for us to care for the needy and the poor and the oppressed. That's God's heart. And if you don't get that, then you need to spend a little bit more time in the Old Testament and read what God's heart is unveiled there. See, we've got to pursue what God wants. James chapter 1 says it a little bit differently. He says, says, uh, be doers of the word and not hearers only. Be be doers of the word. We, we, We want to pursue what God's heart is. Not just talk about it, not just hear about it, but actually Actually, in love, pursue what he wants, first and foremost. And Jesus said it a little bit differently. He said, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. First, to pursue God's heart first. When we wake up in the morning, what does God want? Not what do I want. Not even what does my wife want or what my children want. What does God want? First and foremost, pursue God's heart first. When we remember, when we remember all that God has done for us and His love for us to rescue us and to give us life through Christ, then we will pursue God's heart first. But then we will... Surprise others with love. To do justly, to love mercy. To love love, literally, in the Hebrew. To love the steadfast love of the Lord, not only that He is displayed to us, but also displayed toward other people. When we are held in the grip of God's love, then it's going to change our relationships. It's going to make us love others in surprising ways. To love mercy means that we're going to surprise people in an unexpected way with an extravagant, tireless love that won't let them go. You can see this in 1 John 3, verses 16 and 17, Write it at the margin. 1 John 3, verses 16 and 17. We're supposed to love others in a surprising way and in practical ways. When we see people in need, we're supposed to help them. That's 1st John chapter 3 verse 17 When was the last time we surprised someone with love See God's love is a surprising love Who could imagine that the God of the universe would send His Son, Jesus, to die for sinners who are hostile toward Him? That's surprising. And in the same way, you and I are supposed to surprise people with love. So much so that when we are around people at work or at the grocery store or uh, in our community, in our neighborhood and we love them in surprising ways, it causes them to stop and say, wow, that's different. This is not optional. This is part of loving God supremely. Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And then he defined neighbor as a good Samaritan seeing a stranger beaten and broken on the side of the road and taking care of him. What a surprising love. That's how we're supposed to treat each other. That's how we're supposed to treat the people out there. Democrats, that's how you're supposed to treat Republicans. Republicans, that's how you're supposed to treat Democrats. I don't know about Tea Party or Independents, but... We're supposed to surprise others with love. To do justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with our God. Simply put, to walk, to humble ourselves every day before God. To, 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 to simply wake up in the morning and acknowledge that God is God and we are not. The Hebrew, therefore, humbly is a term that can also mean carefully or wisely. And I think that is truly the picture. We are humble. When we are humble, we are both wise and careful with our walk. The enemy to a humble walk with God is pride, self, self self-interest, selfishness. It's when we exalt what we want, above even what God wants. It's where God is pushed to the margin of our decision-making and our living every day. He's pushed to the margin because the only thing that matters is what I want. Friends, we cannot love ourselves supremely and love God supremely at the same time. And my fear is that in my life, far too often, I've allowed my affection for myself to supersede my affection for God. And I am also afraid that in your life you would have to say the same. See, God resists the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. For us to taste the favor of the Lord, we must every morning that we wake up, say, God, you are God, and I submit myself to you even when it hurts. Even when I don't like it. Even when it's painful. Even when I feel like it's costing me something. Because, after all, isn't that really when love shines brightest? Today, remember... God's love for us. Pursue God's heart first. Surprise others with His love and humble ourselves daily before Him. What does God require of us? To love Him supremely. So we end like this. We're in the court case. God is the judge. God's word is the messenger. The mountains and the hills and all of heaven and earth, they're the witnesses. Are we guilty of having our hearts grow cold toward God? The good news, the good news for us is even if we are guilty of that right now, as followers of Jesus Christ that can turn around see the reason for the court case and through every through all the prof, prophetic court cases in the Old Testament the reason for verses 1 through 8 is so that verses 9 through 16 can be avoided so that the relationship can be restored so that the covenant can be renewed again the same is true for us today here we don't have to weep and mourn and grieve over the punishment of sin that keeps on sinning. No, we, we can turn it around this morning. We can turn our hearts toward God again. And He will hear us. And He will restore us. And we will live. God wants us to love Him supremely. Let's begin right now.